Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder, assault, and sexual abuse that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Chattooga County, Georgia, sits in the northwest corner of the state. Its roads wind between tall, green forests. The area is sparsely populated, but its few residents are known for their religious conviction. If Chattooga citizens had their way, their county would only be remembered for its most famous and devout resident, Howard Finster. He was a Baptist minister and artist who eventually rose to international fame. With his riches, Finster built what he called Paradise Garden, a monument to his god nestled in Chattooga County. Unfortunately for Chattooga's residents, their heavenly monument was counterbalanced by another well-remembered location. Deep in Chattooga's woods lay a hand-built home. Its brick walls held stained glass portraits of death a library devoted to the occult, and a menagerie of demonic images. The home's owners were an openly gay couple, both of whom were members of the Church of Satan. They fermented homemade wine in a shadow-covered still and secreted away three vials of government-grade LSD. They invited friends from all over the country to their home for massive drug-fueled orgies. They called their home... The Corpsewood Manor. The highly religious locals envisioned all sorts of horrors taking place inside the building's cold brick walls. But the truth was far more terrifying than they could have imagined. Welcome to Solved Murders, True Crime Mysteries, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Wednesday, we step into the world of true crime's most fascinating murder cases and tell the tale of how real-life detectives closed the case. You can find episodes of Solve Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free exclusively on Spotify. This is the fourth and final installment of our four-part special, Party Fowls, where we peer inside parties that went terribly wrong. This week, we're covering the 1982 murders of Dr. Charles Scudder and his lover, Joey Odom. They originally named their hand-built home the Corpsewood Manor, ironically, but their sex-filled, drug-fueled paradise became their actual grave. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Hi, I'm Blair. Want to hear something scary? Join me as I read the creepiest urban legends, folk tales, and ghost stories that I learn on my travels around the world and that we receive from listeners like you. But only if you think you can handle it. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time. Sweet screams. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets 
and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. On December 16th, 1982, two Chattooga County Sheriff's deputies drove down country lanes looking for the entrance to Corpsewood Manor. They'd have been called to the house before, but the driveway, which the residents called Dead Horse Road, was always difficult to find. Eventually, they found a dirt road hidden between the trees. The latest winter chill had stripped the leaves from the branches. Their long, thin limbs stretched into the sky, casting eerie shadows on the red brick of Corpsewood Manor. The deputies could see how the property had earned its name. The manor itself was two stories tall. A drawbridge led to a balcony porch above the entranceway. A pink gargoyle perched on the edge, staring at the deputies as they approached. A three-story chicken coop rose beside the manor. The deputies had heard rumors about what took place in that tower. The deputies stepped out of their car and walked around the building. They spotted a utility door hanging open and shouted inside. Dr. Scudder, it's the sheriff's deputies. Your friend Ray Williams said he saw bullet holes on your door. You in there? Dark inside. Let me turn on my flashlight. Wow, Williams wasn't kidding. That door is peppered with holes. You think there's any chance they're still alive? Well, let's find out. Dr. Scudder, we're coming in. Oh, that smell. You ever smelled anything so foul? Not in all my <coughs> days. <laughs> the deputies couldn't believe the stench wafting out of the manor. Rotting food, dust, and filth. Unwashed dogs and body odor. Beneath it all, the smell of decay and death. They entered through the kitchen. The stove looked like it hadn't been washed in weeks. A bucket of dirty water sat on the floor. A dead rat floated inside. Looking more closely at the ground, the deputies noticed a trail of blood crossing to the other side of the room. They rounded the corner, and the trail turned into a large pool of blood congealing on the concrete floor. 44-year-old Joey Odom's feet lay just past the doorway. His body was splayed out on his right side. A second mass of blood gathered around his head. 56-year-old Charles Scudder laid a few feet beyond Joey. He was face down with his arms tied behind his back and his legs turned to the side. Blood had seeped from bullet wounds in his head. Both men had begun to rot. The deputies walked over the bodies and into the study. There they found Scudder's two dogs, a couple of large mastiffs, shot dead. 
One was named Beelzebub, the other was called Arsenath, after a demon from an H.P. Lovecraft story. Both dogs had been killed while they were sleeping beside the furnace. What are you pulling your gun for? I hear those dogs were vicious. Whoever killed them, if they're still around, we'd best be prepared. I doubt the murderer is still here, but better safe than sorry. The deputies searched the rest of the building with their guns drawn. The more they saw, the worse they felt. Dr. Scudder and Joey Odom lived off the grid, so Corpsewood Manor didn't have electricity or running water. The deputies searched the halls using nothing but flashlights. Every move revealed a new sigil of death. Dr. Scudder had human skulls on display, two of which were real. This skeletal motif was ever-present. Scudder had even fashioned a stained-glass window in the shape of a skull. Another stained-glass window had the fearsome goat face of Baphomet, a pagan demon god commonly associated with Satanism. An inverted pentagram was engraved behind him in the iconic style of the Church of Satan. The upstairs bedroom housed a large statue of Mephistopheles, a demon from the German tale Faust. Mephistopheles stood near a smaller statue of Quasimodo, the deformed protagonist of The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Scudder's library had an assortment of literature and textbooks, many of which were devoted to Satanism and the occult. A massive golden harp stood in the corner of one room. Most disturbingly, the deputies found a horrific painting on the wall. It depicted a man's pale face and dead eyes staring through a hole in a brick wall. The man's mouth was gagged, and blood dripped from five bullet wounds in his forehead. It was a self-portrait painted by Dr. Scudder, and it looked eerily similar to Scudder's actual corpse lying not too far from the painting. Something had gone horribly wrong at Corpsewood Manor. The detectives radioed the sheriff and requested backup. The sheriff, his chief investigator, agents from the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, and a team of forensic scientists all arrived a short time later. The investigators brought generators and work lights to pierce the darkness. With the house illuminated, a new detail was revealed. The whole building had been ransacked. Whoever had been there had clearly come in search of something, and they'd left devastation in their wake. Tell me what happened here, Doc, as best as you can. Well, Sheriff, it isn't pretty. Mr. Odom here has been shot six times, five in the head, once in the arm. One of the bullet wounds is a different caliber from the others. Based on the pools of blood, it seems possible that he survived the initial volley and managed to drag himself from the kitchen to the entryway. Then he was likely executed with a different gun, with a shot to the head. Absolutely vicious. What about Dr. Scudder? Scudder's been shot five times, all in the head. Dear Lord, help us. That's exactly like this self-portrait here. Mouth gagged, bullets in the head. Any chance they did this to themselves? A self-fulfilling prophecy? No, sir. Based on the use of two different firearms, I'd say this couple was robbed by at least two people working together. Without remorse or mercy, the painting is just a coincidence. 
As the police continued their search, the atmosphere became increasingly dreadful. They felt as if someone, or something, was watching them. Corpsewood Manor felt like a dark place, and their next discoveries did nothing to alleviate that belief. It seemed that any valuables that could be carried had been taken from the home, every treasure that is, except for three vials of government-grade LSD. Officers discovered these in the back corner of a desk drawer. Prior to moving to Georgia, Dr. Charles Scudder had earned his doctorate in pharmacology and worked as a professor. He performed government-funded experiments on psychedelics, like LSD, so it wasn't surprising that he had some in his possession. What was surprising was the sheer volume he had. Each vial held 4,000 doses. Half the vials were empty, meaning that in the six years Scudder and Odom had lived in Corpsewood Manor, they'd gone through 6,000 doses. In addition to the LSD, the officers found a wine still and many pints of extremely potent homemade brew. The couple had been getting high and bootlegging in their free time. Things got even more interesting when investigators searched the three-story chicken house. The first story functioned as a coop, with plenty of chickens moving about. But when an officer climbed a ladder to the second floor, he found a pornographic library with BDSM magazines and gay porn. There was also a collection of sexually explicit letters Dr. Scudder exchanged with men from all over the country. Many of these men were either currently or formerly imprisoned convicts, and all of them had a massive sexual appetite for Dr. Scudder and his companion, Joey Odom. The third floor of the chicken house was made up of a single room. The walls were painted pink, and the floor was layered with mattresses. The sheriff had heard rumors of drug-fueled orgies occurring at Corpsewood Manor. The LSD, pornographic library, and lavish room full of mattresses all but confirmed that those rumors were true. This discovery horrified the highly religious officers almost as much as the murders themselves. But based on the letters to and from inmates, the sheriff believed he had a working theory for a suspect. One or two of Dr. Scudder's former lovers must have fallen on hard times and decided to rob the doctor. The sheriff believed that if he followed up on all of Scudder's pen pals, he'd find the killers. He expected it would take time to follow up on so many leads, but later that day, he received a phone call that cracked the case wide open and handed him Dr. Scudder's killers on a silver platter. Coming up, we'll catch the Satanists' killers. Massive spiders, fierce crocodiles, violent kangaroos. With all of the dangers lurking within Australia, one species remains feared above the rest. Humans. Hi listeners, it's Alastair from Parcast, and I'm hosting a new Spotify original called Crime Down Under. Every Sunday on Spotify, take a trip to the oldest continent for some of the most shocking true crime cases in modern history. 
Featuring a compilation of episodes from shows across Parcast Network, Crying Down Under exposes the vicious serial killers, mysterious disappearances, and terrifying crime families whose stories still stop Aussies dead in their tracks. From the beaches and deserts to the cities and suburbs, the land down under may be vast, but the horrors are hiding around every corner. Catch a new episode of Crime Down Under every Sunday. Listen free only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. And now, back to our story. On December 16, 1982, the sheriff of Chattooga County, Georgia, was called to the scene of the most horrific murder he'd ever seen. Charles Scudder and his lover, Joey Odom, had been gunned down in their home, the Corpsewood Manor. The sheriff suspected that one of Dr. Scudder's ex-con pen pals had taken advantage of his hospitality. He thought the investigation would last a while. But that afternoon, he received a phone call that gave him his first big lead. Sheriff speaking. Sheriff, we got two calls. The first is from some lawmen out in Mississippi. They found a man strung up to a tree and shot through the head. What's this got to do with me? A very distinct Jeep was seen in the area the day before the killing in Mississippi. Witnesses said it had upside-down pentagrams painted on the sides. That's interesting. Another call came in from Louisiana. Some boys out there found the same Jeep abandoned. They ran the registration, and it belongs to one Dr. Charles Scudder. Good lord. Sounds like these killers are on a cross-country murder spree. Thanks for the information. In a short time, the killers had gotten all the way from Georgia to Louisiana. The sheriff knew he wouldn't be the one to arrest them, but if he could find their names in Scudder's love notes, he could help put a stop to their killing spree. But around 9 p.m., before he had time to start sifting through the notes, the sheriff received another call. Sheriff speaking. Sheriff, you're going to want to get down to Tryon as quick as you can. I've got a girl on the other line who says she witnessed the slayings at Corpsewood Manor. This ain't some sort of prank, is it? It's not a prank. She says she's been held captive for a few days and she only just managed to get free. Copy that. Tell the poor girl I'm on my way. The sheriff sped into town. He pulled up to a house in Somerville, Georgia, where an 18-year-old girl named Teresa Hudgens was waiting for him, tears in her eyes. Teresa's parents stood with her. A 19-year-old boy named Joey Wells sulked in the corner with his mother. The sheriff sat down to speak with Teresa. 
She spent the next 45 minutes telling a bone-chilling tale. On December 12th, Teresa ran into her friend, 17-year-old Kenneth Avery Brock. Brock was an average-looking boy who came from a poor and abusive household. He was hanging out with Wells, who Teresa had never met before. Wells found himself smitten with Teresa. He asked her out on a date later that night. Wells was a good-looking kid, so Teresa said yes. When Teresa got to Joey's house a little after 6 p.m., she found Wells and Brock watching football with Wells' 30-year-old uncle, Samuel Tony West. Teresa didn't know it at the time, but Tony was a convicted killer who'd only recently been released from prison. He and Brock lived together as roommates. Before long, Tony and Brock said they wanted to go for a drive. They invited Wells and Teresa to accompany them. As they drove, they huffed Toodaloo, a mix of paint thinner, glue, and alcohol. They all got high and Tony offered to take the teens to Corpsewood Manor. He knew the eccentric couple that lived there made great wine, and they were always generous with strangers. Teresa was wary of this plan, especially when she heard that the couple was gay and that they were both members of the Church of Satan, but Tony and Brock insisted the men were very friendly. Teresa and Wells had no idea that Tony and Brock had more sinister intentions. When they arrived at Corpsewood Manor, they entered a nightmare. Teresa was forced to watch as Tony and Brock murdered the two perfectly hospitable men. When the violence was over, they threatened Teresa into silence and told Wells to keep an eye on her. Because Tony was family, Wells and his mother covered for him. And to keep Teresa silent, they kept her at their home for four days. They were outwardly friendly to her, but the threat was clear. As time passed, the family let their guards down, and Teresa was able to call her uncle for help. As soon as she got home, she called the police. With law enforcement on their way, Teresa contacted Wells and said she was going to tell the police everything. So Wells agreed to come clean as well. When the sheriff asked for his side of the story, Wells confirmed that Teresa had nothing to do with the murders and that they had both been threatened into cooperating with Tony and Brock. The sheriff brought Teresa and Wells back to the station so they could repeat their stories under penalty of perjury. They both swore that they would testify against Tony and Brock in court. Satisfied with their statements, the sheriff knew the case could be coming to a close. Hello? Sheriff speaking. It's my turn to ask for your help. At 2.30 in the morning. That's right. I've got murder warrants for Kenneth Avery Brock and Samuel Tony West. Put out a nationwide APB. They're the killers we're looking for. Right away, sir. That's good news for an early morning. With the warrants issued and the bulletin sent out, the search for Tony and Brock was on. Even though law enforcement knew the duo had stolen Scudder's Jeep and fled the state, they started their search at Brock's mother's trailer. Teresa told them Brock had borrowed his mother's hunting rifle to commit the murders. At the trailer, they found the rifle in pristine condition. Brock's mother originally thought he'd used it to go rabbit hunting. 
She was horrified to learn that it had become an instrument of murder. After doing some ballistics tests, the authorities confirmed the rifle had been used to kill Scudder and Odom. They still hadn't found the second gun, but the discovery of one murder weapon was a huge step forward. The search continued for three more days, but law enforcement couldn't find anything else connected to the case. Then, on December 20th, only eight days after the murders, yet another phone call shocked the sheriff. <sighs> sheriff speaking. Sheriff, you're gonna wanna get your boys down to Marietta, Georgia, and fast. A couple of gas station employees say they got a 17-year-old who told them he's wanted for murder. They tell you the boy's name? Kenneth Avery Brock. I'm on my way. At 6.30 that evening, Kenneth Avery Brock was brought into custody. Brock provided a full confession. He also admitted to the murder of the man in Mississippi. With one suspect captured and a full confession in hand, catching Tony was the only loose end to wrap up. Brock told officers that he and Tony had made it all the way to Texas, but they'd been fighting, so they split up. Brock headed to Georgia to see his mother, and Tony said he was heading south to Mexico. If Tony had made it out of the country, he may have slipped away for good. But the officers continued the search, and as it turned out, Tony had gone in the opposite direction entirely. The case came to an end only a few days later, during a torrential downpour on Christmas Eve. An officer in Chattanooga, Tennessee, was in the parking lot of a nightclub when a man approached him in the storm. He was drenched, and he held his hands in front of him, waiting to be cuffed. Go ahead and take me in. What for? I killed some people down in Somerville. Well, all right. I'll take your word for it. Without realizing it, this officer had arrested one of the most wanted killers in the American South, Samuel Tony West. By Christmas morning, Tony was back in Chattooga County, confessing to his crime. The Corpsewood Manor murders were all wrapped up in a bow. But the story of how they took place brought the exact opposite of Christmas cheer. Coming up, we'll learn how it all went down. And now, back to our story. By Christmas Day, 1982, both killers involved in the Corpsewood Manor murders had turned themselves in. 17-year-old Kenneth Avery Brock and 30-year-old Samuel Tony West admitted to the crimes, but their confessions were mostly used to cast blame on each other. As such, their stories conflicted. Thankfully, the testimony of eyewitnesses Teresa Hudgens and Joey Wells, along with physical evidence from the scene, gives us a clear and complete story. Brock's relationship with his father was strained. They often argued, and Brock alleged that his father beat him. Brock stayed out of the house as often as he could. In his free time, he went hunting. At some point in the fall of 1982, Brock was hunting deer. It was there in the forests of northwestern Georgia 
that he first heard about the men who lived at Corpsewood Manor. Many young people in Chattooga County liked to visit the couple because they knew that Dr. Scudder was more than generous with his drugs and wine. Intrigued, Brock visited Corpsewood Manor with some friends. There, he met Dr. Charles Scudder. (laughs) Hey, Doc! Hope you don't mind us dropping in. My friend Brock here wanted to see your place. Hey, kiddo! I don't mind you stopping in at all. Boys as cute as you can come by anytime. I assume you're here to <laughs> unwind a bit. We've been sweating in these woods all day. I've got just the thing. Dr. Scudder was both incredibly welcoming and incredibly generous with his alcohol. Soon, the doctor led Brock and his friends to the chicken house. They climbed the ladder up to the pink room. There, the group lounged on the mattresses that lined the floor and drank from Scudder's muscadine wine flasks. While Brock hasn't publicly spoken about his relationship with Scudder, it's possible he initially viewed the doctor as a potential father figure. Scudder was well-educated and charming. He provided Brock with positive attention, something that was severely lacking in his life. Brock didn't yet realize that Scudder's attention didn't come freely, And it certainly wasn't platonic or fatherly in nature. After they'd gotten drunk, Scudder cuddled up to Brock. Brock, right? You still look awfully tense. I think I've got just the thing to help you unwind. Dr. Scudder undid Brock's belt and performed oral sex on the teen. Brock wasn't gay, but he was very intoxicated, and he'd never had any form of sexual contact before. The sex act Scudder performed on him felt good, so Brock didn't think much of it at first. Given the fact that Brock was a minor, Scudder's actions were wholly inappropriate. It was clear that Scudder had shared booze with the underage boy with the goal of initiating sexual contact. Brock's longing for a father figure, plus his intoxication, likely stopped him from understanding the severity of what had happened to him. Brock left that day having enjoyed his visit to Corpsewood Manor. He returned several times after. The price of the free-flowing alcohol and positive attention was his continued participation in sexual encounters. By the late fall of 1982, Brock's relationship with his father had completely deteriorated and he was kicked out of his home. He desperately needed a new place to live, and he found out that his friend, Joey Wells, had an uncle who was looking for a roommate. Brock moved in with Uncle Tony, and the two got along well. It wasn't long before Tony became a new father figure for Brock. As Brock's niece would later say... Tony took Brock under his wing. The wing of a bat out of hell. Unfortunately for Brock, Tony had a dark criminal past. He had shot and killed his two-year-old cousin when he was about 13. He'd spent the rest of his teens in and out of correctional facilities and psychological institutions. In his 20s, he shot his brother-in-law. Luckily, the injuries weren't fatal, But needless to say, most of his family saw him as a bad seed. After moving in with Tony, Brock took him to visit Dr. Scudder in the woods surrounding Corpsewood Manor. According to Tony, they all got loaded and then Scudder had a sexual encounter with Brock. 
Scudder made a move on Tony as well, but Tony told him he wasn't brought up that way and immediately left. When the men returned home, Tony talked to Brock about the possibility that Dr. Scudder had been taking advantage of him. It's not uncommon for sexual abuse victims to not realize they've been abused until someone else points it out. Suddenly, the full weight of the abuse came crashing down on Brock's psyche. Brock grew embarrassed and angry. He and Tony wondered how they could make Scudder pay for his abuse. Tony was convinced that Scudder and Odom were very wealthy. He'd never been inside the manor itself, but he imagined that if they broke in, they'd find untold riches. This plan was foolish for many reasons. Dr. Scudder had moved to the Georgia woods to denounce wealth, and he and Odom lived on about $200 a month. They kept all their worldly riches, which amounted to about $40,000, in a checking account. They hoped this money would last for the rest of their lives. In other words, the couple didn't have anything worth stealing. Nevertheless, Tony and Brock spent months plotting their robbery. Finally, on December 12th, they enacted their plan. Brock borrowed his mother's hunting rifle. He told her he was going rabbit hunting, and she had no reason to distrust him. From there, he met up with Tony. After Teresa Hudgens arrived, the whole group drove to Corpsewood Manor. They arrived sometime after 6 p.m. The doctor greeted them and invited them to the pink room. Joey Odom was in the main house. In the pink room, Dr. Scudder offered the group wine and made conversation with Teresa and Wells. Brock left the room, and soon he returned. (laughs) Bang, bang! Scudder thought the gun was a joke. His laughter and easygoing manner got Brock to laugh with him. Soon enough, Brock set the gun down and drank some more wine. Everyone seemed to be having a good time, but after 20 more minutes of fun... Dr. Scudder turned around to brighten the lantern, and Brock struck. He grabbed Dr. Scudder by his hair and held a knife to his neck. Scudder responded, (laughs) What kind of game do you want to play? I'll play your game. But to Brock and Tony, this wasn't a game at all. They threw Scudder to the ground and then cut strips of fabric from a bed to tie his arms behind his back. Scudder was calm. But Teresa Hudgens panicked. Don't hurt nobody! Let us go! Are you okay, Teresa? You better worry about yourself! While Tony and Brock were binding Dr. Scudder, Teresa and Wells saw their opportunity to flee. They climbed down the ladder as quickly as they could, but they weren't fast enough. Tony caught up to them and aimed the gun. Teresa and Wells begged him to put it down and get in the car. The bad joke had gone on long enough, and they could still leave without anyone getting in trouble. To their surprise, Tony agreed to leave. All three climbed in the car, but when Wells turned the key... It wouldn't start. They couldn't leave. Tony took this as a sign from God. He was meant to rob these men. Tony aimed his gun at the teenagers, forcing them to rejoin him, Brock, and the tied-up Dr. Scudder in the pink room. 
Tony and Brock demanded that Scudder tell them where he kept his money. Scudder insisted that he didn't have any cash in his home, but Tony and Brock refused to accept that answer. They thought they might have better luck asking Joey Odom, who was still in the main house, completely unaware of what was going on. Brock took the gun and climbed down the ladder, leaving Tony with Teresa, Wells, and Dr. Scudder. Soon they heard Brock shout into the house, commanding Odom to get his dogs and come outside. A few seconds passed, then they heard something much worse. Brock climbed up the ladder and told everyone that he'd killed Odom and his two dogs. Then Tony gagged Dr. Scudder and brought him down the ladder and into the manor itself. Joey Odom lay on the floor, peppered with bullets, blood pooling around him. His two mastiffs were dead, curled around the heater. Dr. Scudder cried out, but the gag muffled his screams. Tony ignored the doctor's pain and pushed him into the next room, where he removed his gag and demanded to know where the money was hidden. I told you, we don't have any money, now let me be with Joey. Sit back down or I'll shoot you. I asked for this. Tony shot Dr. Scudder once in the head. Scudder dropped to his knees, then started standing back up. Tony shot him in the head three more times. Scudder dropped to the ground and appeared to be dead. After that, Brock rampaged through the home, grabbing anything of value. He didn't find any money, and he completely missed the vials of government-grade LSD. But he did find a loaded pistol. Brock was almost ready to leave, but then he heard Scudder moan behind him. (sighs) Brock put the gag back in the doctor's mouth, aimed his stolen pistol, and shot Scudder between the eyes. With five bullet wounds in his head and a gag in his mouth, Dr. Scudder matched the self-portrait he'd painted of his own death exactly. It was pure coincidence. Tony and Brock hadn't even noticed the painting. Brock loaded up the stolen goods and then drove away in Scudder's Jeep. Meanwhile, Tony forced Wells and Teresa into his car and finally managed to start it. He dropped them off at Wells' home and threatened them into silence. Later on, Brock picked Tony up in Scudder's Jeep. They drove west all day on December 13th and arrived at a rest stop in Vicksburg, Mississippi by sunset. They discussed stealing a second car so they wouldn't be spotted driving the Jeep, but they were too tired to follow through. Instead, they just went to sleep inside the Jeep. In the middle of the night, they woke to find a Toyota parked next to them. Its owner, Kirby Key Phelps, was asleep inside. They woke Phelps at gunpoint. Tony marched him into the woods. He only intended to chain Phelps up so he and Brock could steal his car and get away before the police were alerted. But while they were marching, Phelps swung at Tony and missed. Tony shot Phelps two times in the head and then cuffed his body to a tree. Tony drove away in Phelps' car and Brock followed in the Jeep. They later left the Jeep in Louisiana and continued towards Texas. 
By the time they reached Texas, they were running out of money and fighting constantly. They agreed to split up, and Brock began hitchhiking home. But once he got to Georgia, Brock's conscience overwhelmed him. He told the owners of a gas station that he was wanted for murder. The police arrived in minutes. Tony, meanwhile, had suspected that Brock would get caught, so he changed up his route just in case his accomplice turned on him. Rather than head south to Mexico, he headed north. He made it all the way to Oklahoma before finally he got bored and lonely. Christmas was fast approaching, and Tony longed for his family. He decided to head home and spend the holidays with his sister before fleeing the country for good. But he ran out of gas just outside the Tennessee-Georgia border. With nothing else to do, Tony started walking to the Palomino Club lounge a few miles away. As he trudged along, heavy rain began to fall. He spent hours making his way through a full-blown thunderstorm. By the time he reached the club, his will was spent. And he was shocked to see a police officer standing in the parking lot. Tony was convinced the officer was looking for him. He didn't have the strength to flee, so he approached the officer and confessed that he was wanted for murder. Tony was arrested right then and there. Both Tony and Brock confessed to the killings of Dr. Scudder, Joey Odom, and Kirby Key Phelps. Their trials had some twists and turns, but in the end, both were convicted of murder and sentenced to life in prison without parole. Both killers are still alive and behind bars. Meanwhile, Corpsewood Manor met its own fate. Several zealous locals didn't want to leave the home of avowed Satanists standing in their Christian woods, and at some point in the late 1980s, the house was set on fire. Some say the devil still haunts the burnt remains. Whether those tales are pure superstition or dark spiritual truth, one thing can be known for certain. Dr. Scudder and Joey Odom's hedonistic paradise became their own personal hell. Thanks again for tuning into Solved Murders. This concludes our four-part special, Party Fowls. We hope you enjoyed this deep dive into the many ways the pursuit of euphoria can suddenly turn into death. For more information amongst the many sources we used, we found the Corpsewood Manor Murders by Amy Petula extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Solved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Yeah, if we live till next time. Solve Murders True Crime Mysteries is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Solve Murders was written by Giles Hofseth, with writing assistance by Karis Allen. Fact-checking by Amber Hurley, and research by Mickey Taylor. 
The amazing cast of voice actors includes Joe Hernandez, Drew Lawn, Albert Park, and Rebecca Thomas. Solved Murder stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. Hi there, it's Alastair from Parcast. You may have heard of the Somerton Man, Azaria Chamberlain, or the Wonder Beach Murders. But do you know the whole terrifying truth? Be sure to check out my new series, Crime Down Under, where we travel to the land down under to explore the most shocking true crime cases in Australian history. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Crime Down Under, and catch a new episode every Sunday, free and only on Spotify. Spotify.